Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World with me, Ken Sims. I am delighted that you can spend your autumnal evening with us, or maybe it's an autumnal morning, depending on when you listen to this, but it's definitely feeling autumnal right now. Where I am uh, in the relative north of England, this is the time of year when it starts raining and pretty much doesn't stop raining until probably around about February time. <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I'm, I've got my fleece on today. I'm still wearing this summery kind of hat. I have no idea why I'm wearing a summertime cap because uh, it's definitely hat and glove weather uh, right now. But anyway, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, today we're going to have an epic conversation about AI literacy, about how businesses can be looking to implement AI properly, ethically, responsibly, where to start, um, and a whole bunch of use cases and, and uh, areas where AI is is uh, really gathering speed and being really useful in uh, healthcare, in agriculture, um, oil and gas, and many, many other industries. I'm going to be joined uh, in just a second by Mara Cairo, who is the product owner at Amy, and we're going to be finding all about finding out all about Amy and all about Mara's work in just one minute. But before I do that, if you are working in AI, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, then if you are interested in uh, putting the good work that you have done to the test, then you can enter the AI World Series Awards. It's happening next year. The open, the, the kind of votes are open now. Uh, if you want to enter, the entries are open now. There's all kinds of categories. There's best use of AI in insurance, best use of AI in healthcare, travel, hospitality, all of the verticals that you would expect to be in there. There's best use of AI in uh, video for images, for product, text, voice. You name it, uh, there is a category there. So if you ha- if you are proud of some of the stuff that you've been working on this uh, this year and you are interested in putting your deployments to the test to see if it is award-worthy, then definitely get yourself involved in the AI World Series. You can enter now. It is AIWorldSeries.com forward slash enter if you want to go straight to the entry page. And uh, best of luck. And also, if you are around next week, November the 9th, we are doing a webinar in partnership with Wisdom, where we'll be walking you through a framework for chatbot optimization. Many teams, many companies, they, they deploy a chatbot. It kind of does its job for the first couple of months, and then things change, and it stagnates a little bit. Or maybe you reach this kind of ceiling where you're not really sure what to do next and how to take it forward, whether what you're working on is the right thing to be working on, whether it's moving the needle in the right direction. And so if you are really in need of some assistance in terms of figuring out we've got a chatbot or a voice assistant or an AI agent, it's kind of going all right, but we're not really sure how we can squeeze more performance out of it, then the webinar next Thursday is absolutely right up your straza. You can go to vux.world forward slash events to sign up now, and I'll wait two seconds for you to go and do that. All right. Perfect. Nice one. Okay. Now then, welcome, please, my guest for today, Mara Cairo from Amy. Mara, welcome to VUX World. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Kane. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. Likewise. In Canada right now, yeah? Sure am. Um, yeah. Edmonton, Alberta. It's We had our first snow and then it melted, but it's it's still a little bit chilly and our days are getting shorter and I'm just kind of getting into hibernation mode at this point, it feels like. <laughs> it is. It is. Harry Potter season in my household right now. Don't know if you're yes. a Harry Potter fan or not. It's, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect Lo- time of year for that. Get the log burner on, get Harry Potter on, and uh, everyone's happy. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Cool. So tell me tell me about yourself then, Mara. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about Amy uh, and how you kind of got yourself into into the world of AI in general. 
Yeah, sure. So I am Mara Cairo, product owner of the advanced technology team at Amy. My background is actually in electrical engineering. So I started in that space. I took the nano engineering specialization when I was in university. So I spent about eight or nine years very much in the hardware space, um, working for a government-funded not-for-profit organization who was really looking to help companies build out a proof of concept, a prototype, and beyond um, using very highly um, specialized equipment and tools to build really small things. So that was kind of my first venture into kind of the tech space and working with clients to build customized solutions. And during that kind of nine years, it was interesting to see the shift from clients really, really focused on the hardware, but over time it was more and more about kind of the software. The We were building sensors usually, and it was more about, okay, now what do we do with the data that we're pulling off of these sensors? Like how can that be our, um, our advantage to the product that we're building? So that's sort of how I got introduced to the field of AI and machine learning, which just organically clients were more and more interested in that technology. Meanwhile, um, after spending about nine years in a clean room, gowned up, working on really, really small things, you have to be really, really careful. Um, I got a little bit sick of that, like really hands-on intense lab work. Um, and I, I realized that I actually enjoyed the work outside of the lab a little bit more. So I liked interfacing with clients. I liked bringing teams together and kind of focusing on the bigger picture. So I was pursuing a project management designation around that time that um, as my that other role was wrapping up. And that's how I got introduced to Amy. So I started about three and a half years ago at Amy in a machine learning project manager role. And then since then, my role has evolved and now I'm product owner of the advanced technology team. I'm essentially leading a team of machine learning scientists and project managers, all working with various clients from various uh, industries to build out custom machine learning solutions to solve their business problems. I really liked that list of um, potential applicants for this AI World series that you were talking about, because that really hits a lot of the different industries and companies that we work with. We're very much industry agnostic. We want to work with anyone who sees machine learning as a tool to make themselves better. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Maybe just a little bit more about Amy. So Amy, in some capacity, has been around for about 20 years, started at the University of Alberta, and it was essentially a group of professors in computing science who were really pioneering and leading the way. Um, Rich Sutton is one of our Amy fellows and our chief scientific advisor. He literally wrote the textbook on reinforcement learning. So it's a, a technology that researchers have been working on for decades. And I think around 2002, they decided to just kind of formalize the really important work that was happening at the U of A in this, in this space. 
over time, it's it's certainly evolved. And in 2017, Amy was kind of spun off as its own non-for-profit. We still have very, very deep ties and connections to the researchers at the University of Alberta. But Amy's goal is to really translate that fundamental research to industry applications. So we are funded by the Pan-Canadian AI strategy, which I believe is the first federal strategy in the world um, where the government is understanding the importance of investing in this type of technology. So us with um, our partners at Mila and Vector in Montreal and Toronto have set up our machine learning center of excellences to help with that kind of commercialization side of things. So mm. that's very much where my work is focused now is that application of the really awesome things that are happening in research, but translating that into real world problems. Interesting. And so does that mean if it's not for profit, it's funded by the Canadian government, is that, and you're utilizing the research coming out of, of the universities, does that mean that you offer all of these services for free? Is there some sort of commercial element to it? Like, what, what is it, if, if a client was going to bring you, bring Amy on board, like, what does that look like? Is that a paid for thing? Is it because it's funded, it's all free? Like, how does it, how does it kind of work? Some of our services are free. Um, so, I'll probably refer to an AI adoption spectrum a lot in this mm, conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where we place companies to assess their maturity um, on their adoption of AI. So at the earlier stages, we do have free or really low cost programming to help with education, help them understand, you know, what machine learning actually is, where it can be applied in their business, helping with kind of the scoping of a machine learning problem. The advanced technology team, the team that I lead is on the other end of that spectrum where we're really providing some robust hands-on support and mentorship. So there are fees associated with the work that we do. Um, a lot of them go to the salaries of the talent that we're employing to build out these machine learning models. So the government funding is really there to support all of the overhead, all of the infrastructure, all of those pieces, but there are fees tied to the longer term kind of bigger scope projects, especially with my team. And like I said, we're, um, we're ensuring that we're, you know, paying the talent of a fair market rate because it's a high demand field and we're often competing with some big companies that have big budgets. So um, that's a, a part of the fees that are, yeah are paid for by our clients that makes sense uh, so tell me more about this ai spectrum then how does that what, what is it and how does it work so the ai adoption spectrum is a way where we essentially assess where a company is at on on their ai journey and amy has products and services to meet companies where they're at, no matter where they are on that adoption spectrum. So the first stage is exploring just like, okay, let's just, let's run down a list of all the potential problems that can be solved with machine learning. Then we move to initiating. So initiating is sort of maybe building out a, a, an initial proof of concept, just seeing what we can actually gain from this technology for their specific application. And then the further stages are more commercializing and then advancing where AI is really the core business driver. And again, that's sort of where the advanced technology comes in 
for those more customized ML solutions that require a lot of resources and talent and, and specialization to continue to drive businesses forward with a competitive advantage. Hmm. And what kind of things are you looking for in terms of placing somebody on that spectrum? Is it purely just their stage of adoption? Like they've deployed something or they haven't, or they've improved a concept or something or they haven't? Or do you look at wider considerations around you know, the business environment, the leadership, the technology maturity, the skills and like what, what kind of th- things do you consider within that sort of framework um, outside of deployment stage or, or is it based purely on kind of deployment stage? I think it's it's a little bit of everything. Um, just because a, a company hasn't fully deployed an AI solution doesn't mean that they're not an AI company and maybe, you know, they just need some additional supports. So the way that we kind of place them on that spectrum is what supports do they need from Amy? So again, is it education? Do they really need to actually understand better what machine learning is? Um, Do they need help defining a business problem and specifically a business problem that can be solved with machine learning? We certainly aren't in the market of machine learning being the solution to absolutely every business problem. We want to make sure that we are finding the right problems to work on and really starting with the business problem and not starting with the technology necessarily. So it's a lot of conversations, brainstorming, scoping, um, which actually takes a decent amount of time. You know, that the the full AI adoption spectrum can be, it can be years until you've like really fully deployed an AI tool. Um, but there's what we find is if you just one day wake up and you decide to build an AI model, um, you're probably missing a lot of important pieces along the way. Like, why are we building this? What do we need from it? What accuracy makes sense? You know, is it actually beating maybe our existing rule-based method, right? Like there's so much thought that should go into it before you want to invest a ton of resources in it. So we kind of help with all of those things. Also, what does your current AI or data science team look like? Like internal resources are important. Amy is really about helping our partners build their internal capacity. So we're not really like a, an AI dev shop. Um, the models that my team builds are, you know, a piece of the main deliverable, but it's also the talent piece. So the people that we've actually hired to build those models for this specific client, we hope that the client considers bringing them internally into their team at the end of the engagement. Uh, Cause we don't really see these types of projects or tools as things that are done after, you know, a, a mm. year project or something. So we help with that talent piece as well. And that's really how we're, helping them build their internal capacity in the longer term. Interesting. So you would, am I understanding this right, where you would essentially find the talent, hire the talent, find a company, go through that process, the the maturity assessment, figure out what to do, build whatever the solution is, and then the talent you would essentially then encourage that company to employ. Is that how it works? Oh, exactly. they would they would still work for Amy, but they would just kind of technically work for that company, but still underneath Amy. Or or, or is it a route through to kind of high, how, enabling companies to hire AI talent? 
That's exactly it. Yeah, we we want to step away at some point. We don't want companies to have to rely on us all the time for everything. The whole goal is to, you know, maybe work ourselves out of a job because we've <laughs> been able to enable all companies to have the internal tool sets to carry the work forward. Um, so we actually, we go out and we find the individual, the talent after we've signed the contract with the client because they're, is a lot of sub-specializations under the machine learning umbrella and we play a bit of a matchmaker. So once we understand the business problem that we will be working on, we go out and we find someone that actually has relevant academic and potentially work experience and we kind of match it that way in, in order to make sure that that talent is bringing the right skill sets to the problem. Interesting. That's a really unique way of doing it, actually. So, so you have a core team, yes, and yeah. So, so the core team does the bulk of the work. Presumably, the talent that you bring in works alongside the core team, so that they're upskilled, and then you deploy that talent within the organization, so they can look after it going forward. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. So we're maybe a little bit like a, a talent incubator. Um, the the people that we're looking to put in these roles are usually at the master's level or higher and usually coming from a, a machine learning specialization or some sort of computing science with some experience in the, the area of AI and machine learning. So they're basically that hands-on resource. They're dedicated fully to the client project. They're the ones doing the code, but they're really supervised and mentored by our, our permanent team. So we have um, more senior scientists on the team and project managers who bring lots of industry experience and the talent is essentially directly reporting to the other scientists on the team. So the client is not only getting that, you know, hands-on dedicated resource, but they're getting a lot of supervision and mentorship from other scientists on the team who have solved similar problems in the past and can help with that again like kind of translation of academic research into tangible results so we really form a a project team around each client project and move it forward that way interesting that's such an interesting idea that like it's uh it's brilliant <laughs> um so what would some of the examples be then, you know, off the top of your head, pick a, pick a few sort of standout kind of examples of, of the kind of work that Amy's been doing over the last sort of 12, 18 months or so? Yeah, so I have to be a little bit careful because we do have NDAs with all of our clients, but I can speak generally and I think kind of um, answer your question still. So we've actually seen a lot of interest in the supply chain space over the last year or two. I think specifically because of sort of the breakdown that we saw during COVID. Um, companies are looking to kind of disrupt or innovate in that space. So we work with companies to, you know, better predict inventory. Um, one project we're working on right now is it's a startup based out of Calgary, our, our neighboring city, and they, they want to be able to better help um, warehouses kind of lay out the, the products. So from the beginning, like when you're setting up a warehouse from, from scratch, how do we organize and sort the products so that we can pick most efficiently? Um, so that's a really interesting project we're working on right now. Um, 
out of that, that specifically supply chain, we also, we do work a lot with oil and gas companies. Um, lots of folks in that space are interested in reducing emissions, you know, creating more efficient processes. So for instance, um, like preventative maintenance, how do we better predict maybe when, when a tool is about to fail before it does so we can go in and fix it, but also how do we avoid unnecessarily kind of doing preventative maintenance if, if it's not needed because mm. that downtime is obviously very, very expensive in that space. Um, we work with um, the National Research Council of Canada. We're actually working on a fairly kind of still fundamentally research problem with them, um, looking to better predict protein abundance in different plants. So, you know, how are we going to feed our growing population? We should make sure that the crops that we're planting have sufficient protein to feed people. So that's a really interesting one. Really like across the board, every project we deal with is different, um, which is why the job is so exciting. There's, you know, never the same kind of project once, lots of different challenges and whatnot. But when you start digging into these things, you see that there's similarities even across different industries. And that's where our team can actually come in and say, oh, like we actually saw this problem on this different use case. I think we can apply the same sort of tools or techniques here. Um, so our team has tons of expertise in different areas that makes us really valuable for new projects that come on. Mm. And what what are kind of some of those similarities, some situations? So if someone's listening now and they're, they're considering a problem that, that AI may be able to solve, what are some of those kind of similarities that you see requirements being kind of across across industries that you're referring to there? I think one thing that we see a lot is problems with the data. Um, certainly, like, we're working on real-world data coming from our real world. Um, and nothing's perfect. You know, we don't get perfectly curated data sets that, you know, you might get from um, academia or various websites. We're working with imperfection. And so dealing with that, I think across the board, there's different tools that the team has learned how to still make use of the data, even if it is imperfect. Um, even, you know, in, in some cases, like being able to generate new data, some, some problems lend themselves well to like artificially created data. That's not always the case, but um, there are some problems that, you know, you just, it, it won't hamper the machine learning model to generate additional data. So that's one example. And then, you know, beyond that, there are different machine there's the common kind of machine learning models and new new techniques and models coming out all of the time, especially nowadays, it seems. So um, just making sure that the the team is staying up to date on kind of state of the art, what's, what's coming out, sending them to conferences and then bringing everyone back and um, finding, again, those, those relevant, relevant tools that can fill potential gaps that we're seeing with different projects. Mm. Yeah, I think the data side of things is is an issue in every organization, really. I mean, I think that it's the limiting factor in many yeah. conversational AI projects, especially those that are using 
kind of like intent-based NLU systems, getting data for those systems is a challenge because a lot of, I think probably two years ago, the best practice was get real live transcripts from people talking, customers, and then build a model around that. And then what you realize very quickly when you try and do that is that whatever the conversational assistant says and how it says it, that dictates entirely what the response is back from the customer. And therefore, actually, the data that you have in your model isn't representative of the kind of ways that people speak to an AI assistant because right. it's not human, quite clearly not human. And so you're talking about fabricating data. The you know generative AI actually is proven fairly decent at kind of creating data for those models um, sure. rather than relying on, on real data. Because real data, one is in that instance, it's not necessarily always representative. But even if you look at large language models and a lot of the work that's being done on large language models around like retrieval augmented generation and, and stuff like that, that limiting factor again is the data. You know, it's not a case of just hook up your website and boom, away you go. It's like hook up your website and then figure out where all your garbage is and then get rid of all that garbage and then all the stuff that's not garbage, mark it up, label it, tag it, you know, like, so there's still, the whole thing relies fundamentally you know, certainly in NLP, and I, and I don't see any reason why it's any different in any other type of AI, but everything starts with having decent data in the beginning. For sure. And like back to that AI adoption spectrum, that's one of the things we're assessing at the beginning too. If there is no data for us, then we certainly don't want to commit to a, a hands-on, you know, year-long project. Um, I think... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting with like generative AI and sort of the doors that that, that has opened as well. But, um, you know, we we understand that data is, isn't perfect. It, sometimes it can be good enough, you know. Um, sometimes we can get something like a proof of concept. But overall, like our projects by nature are really, really iterative. And we allow for that really intentionally because... It's something where, you know, you start with a business problem, you move on to data understanding and then ML modeling and then kind of full deployment. But at any time, we want to be flexible enough so that we can go back um, to maybe scoping a different business problem or maybe collecting new data. So when we're working on these longer term projects with our clients, we you know, we'll try and kind of develop some sort of baseline with what we have. And then oftentimes, while our team is really focused on improving and experimenting on the ML modeling, our client is actually collecting more data based off of what they've seen so far, based off of what we've told them about what we need to improve accuracy or whatnot. They're kind of able to go back and collect more data, label it appropriately. So it's very, very iterative. And, you know, the nature of these projects is still sort of experimental and exploratory mm-hmm. in nature. Um, and we kind of build that into the entire process. We we don't want to commit to one technique necessarily. Um, mm. we, we welcome that kind of iteration and exploration because that's oftentimes how we get the best results is just by keeping lots of doors open and allowing for us to take two steps back if we need, because we still understand that it'll ultimately be more valuable than just kind of continuing down a path that might, might not be leading us anywhere. Mm. You mentioned that um, 
kind of like synthesizing data where data may not may not exist. Another way potentially of of doing it is that when you go to gather data, go into the field to gather fresh data, that requires a, a kind of organizing, categorizing, labeling kind of process. Have you experimented much with kind of like automatic data labeling? Yeah, we're actually kind of experimenting with that right now, um, specifically in the more computer vision space. Um, those problems are often, or I guess those projects that we see coming from industry are often the ones with the most limited amount of data. But um, there are some really interesting techniques and even more like off the shelf tools that can be used to help augment existing images to create new ones, assuming that, you know, there's obviously some cases where it doesn't work, like if rotation is a concern or something, but um, the team's really creative at, at being able to generate more data if and when they can, again, very, very dependent on the type of problem that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that we're actually thinking about maybe building a bit of a more internal tool that our vision scientists can use specifically for that. Mm. Um, didn't you mention before when we spoke that uh, was it the uh, the pro protecting protein uh, oh. in crops example was using NLP? Was that the one that was using NLP or was it a different one? Yeah, no, it is. So it's it's using it in a bit of a different way because we're we're um, using DNA sequences to predict that protein abundance. But fundamentally, the team is using uh, you know traditional NLP models to do that same sort of analysis just at the the DNA level um, instead of the word or the sentence level. So, um, and that's, you know, one thing again that we explore with our clients at the beginning is based off of the business problem and based off of the data, what are the existing models and, and technologies that we can apply to these unique use cases? Um, but yeah, that one's really interesting because we're able to use NLP maybe on a project that doesn't necessarily feel like an NLP project, but it still very much is. So, <laughs> so I'm understanding this right, that you would have a crop of some description. You would extract the DNA from that crop and then the DNA code, essentially, would then be, I suppose, compared to thousands or millions of other strands of DNA to, to then extract the strands of DNA that have a, an abundance of protein to then figure out whether this piece of DNA has an abundance of protein and you're using NLP to do that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, no, you got it. And it's basically <laughs> like we, again, the labels here would be what are the existing protein abundances of like known crops, right? So there's a lot of like wet lab experimenting going on. And luckily our clients have that sort of capability to do those experiments. But once we, we have like a known protein quantity for a known DNA sequence, we can better predict what unknown DNA sequences might reveal. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Um, how do you, when you're going through that process of that kind of like um, the the AI adoption spectrum and, you know, clearly it sounds as though data is 
both the challenge and the opportunity, but either way, a big factor in whether or not something goes forward. What other considerations do you take when trying to assess whether a business problem is the right problem for a machine learning solution? I think, you know, like we, again, we don't want to solve problems that aren't machine learning problems just for the sake of saying that we we did that. So at the earlier stages of the spectrum, we are making sure that we can see gaps or flaws in existing, again, maybe like rule-based solutions. Um, but sometimes those are actually a good benchmark for us. So again, like we always, we don't ever necessarily know what type of accuracy we're going to get to, but we work with clients who are interested in trying it or seeing it. So maybe in that case, we do a bit of a, a smaller, shorter term project with them just to see like, what can we get? Are we going to get close to beating your baseline? Whatever that looks like. Um, there needs to be that buy-in from the organization, right? And they they need to understand that machine learning, you know, it's not just magical dust that we sprinkle on problems to get these great solutions. Um, it's a tool that is used to make humans make better decisions. So there needs to be that kind of acknowledgement when we're working with companies as well. Um, there's great business problems that are very well suited to ML. And there's also business problems that probably won't benefit too much from it. So we want them to have kind of that understanding going in. Mm. Um, and we're looking for, you know, practical applications, like just very simple terms. What is the input and what is the output? Like, what are we actually trying to predict here? Um, so again, like lots of work with with companies at the beginning to make sure that they understand that and they understand that it is a journey. It's not something that's, you know, just done in a week and then you can deploy it and walk away. Um, it's something that, you know, if you're really interested in the technology, you'll probably have to commit your own internal resources to, to carrying it forward. And again, we kind of help with that. Mm. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of things. Interesting. The... Um... There's a there's a really good analogy um, by Lawrence Maroney. He's the AI advocacy lead at uh, Google, and one of the great kind of examples he gives of of something that is a great machine learning problem is that I think the way he explains it is something like traditional programming is uh, rules plus data. And that equals the answer that you're looking for. So if you if you do this, you know, and, and supported by this data, then it, you will provide an answer. Um, whereas machine learning is answers plus data equals rules. And so the, the brilliant example he gives is like, for example, if, if you are, he doesn't give this exact example. But this is the way I've kind of phrased it in the past, which is that like the the data that you might have, for example, could be like a web form. And the data is the data coming through that form. The rules that you would apply into that would be like, if the customer is logged in, then pre-populate the email address. And if this button is clicked, then submit the form or whatever. Um, whereas the example, so that's not the example he gives for traditional programming, but the, the example he gives for machine learning is, 
if you have data such as um you know someone's smartwatch and the data is movement and then you give it answers which is the movement here is someone running or the movement here is somebody playing golf you know so you're giving it the answers and then it then creates the rules which is okay what's the pattern here which i can then recognize as somebody swimming What's the pattern here that I can recognize as somebody playing golf? And therefore, your smartwatch will detect when you're walking the dog, when you're swimming, when you're playing golf, because it's the the data combined with the answers generates the rules. Is, how, what are your thoughts on on that sort of like Lawrence's perspectives? And is that something you're considering when you're going into these uh, initiatives? No, I, I really, really like that analogy. I, I haven't heard of it before, but I, I totally agree. Um, I think the one caveat is the rules that are generated by ML aren't necessarily ever going to be understood by humans, which is a whole other, you know, subfield of AI, that explainability piece. Um, I think, you know, when we're talking about um, models in the medical domain or anytime we're making decisions or predictions about humans, oftentimes people want to know how we got to that decision and that that can be a little bit tricky because ultimately the rules that were created um, are probably multi-dimensional, very complex, something that, you know, you or I aren't going to be able to explain or understand. And that's sort of the beauty and the magic of machine learning is because it can just handle much more complex scenarios, situations, but on the flip side, we don't always necessarily know how the model came to that conclusion or, or created that rule. So um, like I said, lots of um, companies aren't super concerned with that, with that explainability piece. There's certainly use cases where I think we need to be really careful about that. Um, but ultimately, you know, like the, the models that we're building and the tools that our clients are, are using, it's, to augment the the human decision maker, these the the things we're deploying right now aren't replacing humans or you know making decisions without uh, a second gut check. Um, but I think that's the the one piece I would add to that is the mm-hmm. rules um, are much more complicated than what we could ever understand or build. That's a very good point, and and I suppose that is actually. As you suggested, therein lies the issue that everybody now is trying to wrestle with as far as generative AI is concerned and large language models and stuff like that. Why is it generating certain responses? How could it generate other responses that are, you know, unexplainable? How do we get some kind of control over this so that it can be used ethically and responsibly and it's not kind of, um, you know, going to go out of control? Based on based on your sort of experience and kind of what you seem to be alluding to there, which is that sometimes we'll never be able to fully trace back specifically exactly why certain decisions are being made because of the fact that it's comprehending rules that we can't. From an explainability and from an explainable AI perspective, do you think that that is a solvable problem? You know, part of part of the legislation that every country is, is coming up with right now is to do with explainable AI, mm-hmm. yet... Yeah everyone who works in the field will say that these things are black boxes. It seems to be that, that there's a disconnect between what regulators want and what the reality of the technology is. What are your perspectives on 
on that. Is AI fully explainable? Not right now, but I, I, I think there's a ton of research going into that um, specifically. And again, even some of our researchers at the U of A are really focused on, on more explainable AI. I don't know what the future holds. I, I hope, you know, I guess in a way that um, we can understand the decisions or the rules that these models are following eventually, because I think that will help with buy-in and security and ethics and all of that things, all those things. But I also think, you know, by nature, the more complex the models, like when we start talking about deep learning, especially that's where it's probably going to get really tricky for us to, to fully understand or explain. Um, but I don't know, you know, we've, we've come a really long way. We've developed some really cool technologies in the past. And I am hopeful that, um, we can maybe get to a place where things, these models are, are more understood and understandable. Um, but you know, there might be limitations and that might also hinder what we can do with this technology. So that's a tough question. I don't, I don't, that's my non-answer to your question. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned there that some companies are not concerned with it. Uh, some companies will be. Um, and especially in areas where you are using it in a kind of customer-facing situation, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I suppose, you know, Netflix using an AI algorithm under the hood to show different people different thumbnails based on their actor or actress pre preference is not really the end of the world. But a, 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 a thing that you can interact with that gets to know you that can then start to outside of the world of entertainment start to influence you into certain things or a business that is you know i don't know the, the example i the example i like to sort of give is like there was a there was a, a, a exact a video on youtube of tony robbins years ago and he was talking about um it was a really old video and he was talking about one of his very first sales jobs and he said that he had a script, essentially. It was almost like a flowchart thing. And he'd go to someone's house, he'd knock on the door, and he was selling music subscriptions, but in the days of tapes. And so he'd have a suitcase full of tapes, and he would kind of get a conversation going, and he'd try and find out what artist the person liked. And, oh, do you listen to much Frank Sinatra? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he'd kind of get this conversation going, and he'd get them to a place where he'd kind of like, he knows their music preferences, and he'd be like, well, you know, do you listen to music? Oh, well, I don't listen to music as much as I should. Oh, well, would you like to listen to more music? Oh, yeah, I'd love to listen to more music. I just don't have access to music. Oh, well, if you could have access to music, then would you listen to more music? Oh, well, yes, I would. And if that <laughs> access to music was really cost effective, would you do it? Oh, yeah, I would. Yeah, well, how much would you pay for that access to music? Oh, about $5 a month. Okay, so if you would pay $5 a month for access, and he just goes through this whole kind of thing, and he ends up boxing them into a corner where they end up kind of like forced to agree that, yes, right. I commit to paying $5 a month to access the music of my choice. And then he gets them to the, this place where they're just about to agree and he's, and they then always have this final objection, which is, oh, well, you know, I would love to do this. I would love to kind of uh, to, to go ahead with this subscription, but I just don't have a tape player. And then he would say the final thing as well, if you subscribe today and he pulls the tape player out, player out the briefcase, he says, you get a free tape player. And so it, it's a really kind of like manipulative sales kind of thing. And he was the, the point of the video is he's saying that this is shocking. Like I can't believe that I used to be kind of asked to do this kind of stuff. And so it got me thinking like an AI model that is trained on these rules, that is you know highly trained to be a manipulative sales 
person or a manipulative politician or a manipulative scam artist or whatever it might be in the wild has huge potential for all all kinds of sort of damage, you know. So it's like uh, the kind of wrong way of getting around to that is that some companies don't care. Some companies do care. The potential of it to be something that everybody cares about is is pretty great. The mm-hmm. internal human in the loop thing is a great place to start, and a lot of companies start there with, especially with with language based models and, and generative AI. It's like, okay, can we use it internally to help our us search for information and stuff like that? We can control it. Yeah. If it comes back with something that's incorrect, then it's fine. But um, it's a it's a it's a mad one. How you know? I know I'm I'm jumping forward a lot of steps there in terms of like this. This stuff getting into the wrong hands and that kind of stuff, but I can I can understand why you know in part there is such concern about explainability and about kind of ethics and all that you know. For sure, yeah. Well, and I think especially with the generative AI tools that we've seen now, like all the data that exists in the world is biased in some way, right? Like we everything about our world is a little bit biased. So now we've built these tools, and there's just a lot of biases built in. So yeah, that can be extremely dangerous. One thing we haven't really talked about is like the ethics piece. And obviously, Amy, internally, we have our responsible AI practices. And it's basically from the beginning of talking with potential clients, we're kind of putting their use cases through some rubrics and getting different scoring and assessing if this is something that we want to be involved in that we should be involved in. but, you know, I, I would really encourage any organization who's looking to to get involved in this type of work, you, you do need to put a lot of thought into the more like ethical side of this. It's not just about deploying this really powerful technology. Um, there needs to be kind of an org wide understanding of the challenges and the risks and the potential side effects, even if they're not like super obvious at first, but sometimes when you start thinking about like, okay, how is this data collected? Who labeled the data? Even if it's a decision that doesn't like immediately impact humans, when you start kind of thinking about these things more deeply, you can find some potential risks. So um, again, like we have our own internal processes and we have some ethics courses that we provide the public to get them familiar with this, but it is really the responsibility of of different organizations to put some thought into this. And I know there's a ton of talk going on right now on the governance side of things. Um, And so maybe this is just in the the meantime before, you know, there are lots of rules and regulations for us to follow. Um, It's certainly something that also needs to be thought about and invested in. Mm. It's a very challenging thing though, isn't it? Because you know, the governance and, and regulation and that side of things is definitely going to hamper every open source project. Um, it's only really going to favour the, the big companies who've got enough resources to put into making sure that everything is adhered to. So it's, it's like, a, it's really a really wrong time to be kind of enforcing things like that. On the ethics side and transparency side, kind of like one thing definitely is like, where's the data coming from? Is it kind of sensible? Is it is it biased? Is it has it been labelled effectively? All that kind of stuff is is important to be transparent about. But then on the other side, the output of the fact that this this is an AI model that's also a part of the discussion, isn't it? Is like how how do you make it clear to people that they are 
kind of experiencing some solution that has been generated by AI. Like no, exactly. like yeah, no. When you when you make a Google search. Google doesn't have a big exclaimer that says these results are based on decades of your previous browsing history and and what we know about what websites you visit. And Netflix doesn't say, hey, these thumbnails are based on the last five films that you watched and the actors that you tend to have a lean towards. Um, Yeah, and neither does, I suppose, ChatGPT, it's it's fairly obvious, and some chatbots and that will have, you know, AI generated next to them if they're using generative AI. But some of the talk around um, how to kind of validate or how to be transparent around the output are things like you know on on um digital humans having watermarks and stuff like that and in ai generated mm. audio having like digital signatures within there like maybe is that a 21 kilohertz frequency that the human ear can't understand can't hear and stuff like that but then all of that stuff only goes so far because you can't do anything with text all the models that produce text are just forever going to be completely uh Un- impossible to to kind of trace basically because if I if I deploy a chatbot today I don't have to say that it's an AI I don't have to say that I don't right. know how it's making its decisions you know so it's kind of like there there is the, the, at the moment it's good to have the discussions um, I think it's too early to make really hard decisions on governance but at the same time on the ethics side of things not only is it very difficult to implement but it's kind of like yeah, it's almost like nice conversations to have, but what actually really should be done? I think it's a very difficult question that I don't think I've seen a good answer to yet. I agree. And yeah, I think Amy's stance is is very much like we we don't want the technology to be unnecessarily regulated or hindered because there's a lot of like really important problems that are being solved with it. Like, you know, not maybe Netflix recommending things to us, but um, you know, we're working on a, a water treatment project with one of our, our partner companies, just like giving communities clean access to water through a more like autonomous system. There's some big, big problems that can be solved with the technology and we we don't want to see it hindered either. I think um, our stance is really like it's heavy on the AI literacy right now. So um because like you said, not everything is super obvious or apparent. There's some things that are, and that's fine. But I think people do need to kind of take it upon themselves to understand where this technology is currently being used, why it's being used. Again, like what, how was it built generally? Not, not really getting into the technical details, but the AI literacy piece, I think, becomes really important now, especially because there's tools out there that, anyone can interact with. And if you don't know any better, you could be fooled or, you know, led astray. So um, Amy actually just announced a, a new AI Everywhere undergraduate course for students at the University of Alberta. Um, non-technical, technical, everyone is available to, to take the course. And again, it's really to make sure that everyone has that AI literacy tool for themselves and they understand the strengths, limitations, risks, and they can make better informed decisions. Um, Because, yeah, I I don't think the technology is going anywhere. And like I said, I think there's so many problems that it can solve for us. But I think it does become a little bit more on the responsibility of individuals to make sure that they're fully literate in this space because it's something that we're all already interacting with Mm. it's like it's a bit like um over the years of 
social media and email, like growing up with those things, you kind of get attuned to it, don't you? You can spot a scam email a mile away. You know, you can you know when uh, a social media profile is is just completely bogus. Like I don't know, I don't know how, but it's just yeah. it's just obvious. You know, like, because you have the, the the literacy from from being around it so much and growing up around it so much. I suppose the 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 risk, not risk, but like the uh, difference this time is that maybe me and you and and people who are in this field, you would look at you'd listen to a synthetic voice. And you say that's that's a synthetic voice. You would you would read something that's been produced by ChatGPT, and you say that's looks like it's being written by a fifteen year old. But some people wouldn't, and it's going to get yeah. better. You know, it's exactly. definitely going to get better. And so it's kind of like even those now, like us today, would be thinking that's obviously a digital human. That's not a real person. That's not real footage. At some point, maybe I don't know if this will be the case or not, but it seems as though at some point, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years. At some point in time, it's probably going to be indistinguishable. For sure. Well, I'm like, yeah, right now I, I worry about my parents because I don't think that they're as good at detecting, you know, deep fake videos or, you know, they are maybe a little bit easier or more susceptible to some scans. But yeah, I think it, it is just going to continue to improve, probably to the point where it's hard for all of us. And um, that's where it gets maybe a little bit not scary, but it gets more important to make sure that, you know, we're still able to somehow decipher real from AI. Yeah. And hopefully the criminals continue. I mean, some criminals are pretty clever, but some of them are absolutely stupid (laughs) because I don't know, you probably haven't seen this, but in the UK, there is a TV presenter called Fiona Bruce. Right, she does. She presents some, maybe some news programs. She presents TV programs, and she presents the Antiques Roadshow. Now, the Antiques Roadshow is a program where people turn up at a spot in, a, in the countryside, bring old antiques, and have them valued. Now, the people, most of the people on that show are definitely in their seventies. <laughs> I've seen most, it. I, I used to have always watch that show. I oh, there you go. Yeah. So, but it's a, it's a fascinating show. But like, and, and I find it interesting because you want to have a bit of a bet with everyone in the room about how much things are worth. But like, the core demographic of that show is generally skews a lot older. The people that are on the show that bring stuff to the show generally skew a lot older. And so, Fiona Bruce is well known in in the UK specifically with the kind of older demographic. Now there was a okay. deep fake of Fiona Bruce that was released. I think it was in August, and she was selling cryptocurrency, and it was a oh, scam no. saying like, you know, oh, come and buy this cryptocurrency, and that. It's like you you could have oh. got so much better there. That's not your target market. You're not going to get someone's grandma to buy cryptocurrency. You'd have been far better pretending to be QVC and trying to sell them a pair of old jeans or something like that. You know, <laughs> so it's like <laughs> or some like uh, foot massage kind of uh, you know. Hardware, right. you know, foot, foot, foot <laughs> yeah. spas or something. So, like, the, the, so, so, like, the, the technology is probably there now today, where it is probably for certain people, it is, you know, definitely dangerous from that from that perspective. But hopefully, the the scammers and criminals keep on using the wrong deep fakes, targeting the wrong people, and don't get away with anything for the foreseeable future. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, classic. 
Anyway, thank you, Mara, for, for joining me. This has been absolutely such an interesting conversation. I think we've got into a lot of nooks and crannies and, and really important areas there as well that uh, the whole world is, is considering right now. Um, so thank you for bringing your, your expertise and, and perspectives. Um, I will put the link to Amy in the show notes. Uh, so if you're awesome. listening right now, if you want to check it out, you can go to amy.ca. That's A-M-I-I dot C-A to learn more. I'm sure, Mara, you wouldn't mind people connecting with you on LinkedIn if they're interested in, in learning more or, or reaching out or anything like that. Of course. Yeah, please do. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And uh, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kane. It was great. No problem. Thank you all for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you very much. Bye now.